The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. If you have been studying along with us in recent months, you know we have been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we uh, made our way all the way to chapter 7 before uh, we, we took a break and sort of did a rewind for a moment and went back to chapter 2 for the Christmas season and looked at the birth of Christ. We skipped over that earlier in the year, and we went back to it here during the Christmas season, and now well, we pick up sort of where we left off in Luke chapter 7 this morning, giving attention to verses 11 through verse 17. So if you have your Bibles, you'd, like, you'd, you'd want to turn there to Luke 7. I'll read it for us this morning. Here's what Luke writes. He says, Soon afterward he went down to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. And he came up and he touched the bier. And the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word. It has authority over us. It has authority to us. Your word is the truth. It's a light to our path. It's a light to our soul. In a world full of confusion and lies, your word stands alone as sovereign truth. So we submit ourselves to your word this morning, and we ask you by your spirit to teach us from it. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this time of the year, around the first, we always see the list of things that happened in the previous year start to come out in the, uh, in the, the journal articles and the newspaper and online. One of the things that often gets published about this time of year is a list of people who've died in the previous year that the world knows and that we all would know in general. 2021 was not unlike any other year that you and I have experienced or that the world has experienced. A lot of people lived and an awful lot of people died. There were some who started January 1, 2021 who did not get to start January 1, 2022 with you and with me. Maybe you paid attention as the year was going on, but some notable people died this year. You remember General Colin Powell, who had been with us for many years, famous Army General, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the first black secretary of state in the United States. He died this year. If you're a sports fan, you probably know that John Madden passed away this year. He seems like he's lived forever, and he will live on forever in all the video games that are now named after him. If you don't like football and you do like baseball, then you know that Tommy Lasorda passed away this year, at least if you're an L.A. Dodgers fan. Larry King, famous CNN host. I was reading about him this week. You know that man conducted over 50,000 interviews in his life? Remarkable, really. But his life came to an end this year. No more interviews. If you're my age or older, you may remember a guy by the name of Ed Asner. Played a famous 
man called Lou Grant on the Mary Tyler Moore Show. All right, just quickly, show of hands, so I'm not the only one who knows what the Mary Tyler Moore Show is and who Ed Asner is, okay. Good, that makes me feel better. If you know who Ed Asner is, then you probably know who Willard Scott is as well. Famous television news weatherman for NBC's Today Show for really over 30 years. Died at the age of 87. What you may not know about Willard Scott was that he was at one point in his career selected by his network to go to clown school in California to learn how to become a clown. And he became a famous clown by the name of Bozo. Bozo the Clown. I thought that was interesting because he said something about this in his life and it's quoted. He said this, I was either going to be a politician when I graduated or Bozo. And I chose the straight life. I chose Bozo. I love that quote. It's fantastic. Willard Scott, if you're a music fan. A number of music legends died this year. Tom T. Hall, famous country music singer, songwriter, wrote some of the most famous country and western songs of all time for a ton of other singers who recorded the stuff that he wrote. Again, if you're old enough to know Ed Asner and Willard Scott, you may be familiar with Don Everly from the Everly Brothers, especially if you like I was going to say if you like what's on the oldies radio station now, but I guess the Everly Brothers would be on like the old oldies station now. So I don't know where you would find that. Lloyd Price, the famous R&B artist, best known for his song Personality. You know that song? Passed away this year. As well as famous rapper and producer DMX, who died at the age of 50. If you're a baseball fan and you aren't a Dodgers fan then you know also that Hank Aaron passed away this year. The one-time Major League Baseball home run leader who broke Babe Ruth's record at the time. He was one of the, the first African-American Major League Baseball players to gain success. Faced racism his entire career, incredible racism his entire career, and yet he persevered in the face of it and became a legend. Someone worth looking up to in many ways passed away this year. As we go through these lists, and that's just a sampling of those who passed away in 2021, uh, when we go beyond those who are famous on sort of the cultural scene, I'm sure probably in your life and in your own experience, there are people that you know who began 2021 who are not beginning 2022. There certainly are in my experience. Just a few weeks ago, a friend of, of several decades passed away at the age of 59. Life has a way of coming and life has a way of going, doesn't it? And as time passes along, people live and people die. Every year on New Year's Eve, uh, I think we are more aware of the passing of time than in any other time in the year. I mean, what other day in the year do we sit and literally watch the seconds tick away on the clock and count down? We do that on New Year's Eve. And when the clock strikes midnight, we celebrate, and we celebrate the arrival of a new year. It's really fascinating that we do that because when you think about it, the last second of the previous year is really no different than the first second of the next year or any other second in that year. Except that once that last second of a year passes, we enter into something new, a new day, a new month, in a real sense, a new year. So why does that matter to us? Why does it matter to us that a new year begins? Well, it matters, I think, because years are an important metric of time for us. Years matter to us. Every year that passes, we're we become more and more aware that a significant part of our life is gone and it doesn't come back. In fact, we keep track of our life in terms of how many years we've been alive, right? If somebody were to ask you, how old are you? You wouldn't tell them how many months you've been alive. You wouldn't tell them how many seconds or minutes you've been alive. It would probably take you all afternoon, some of you, to calculate that. You tell them how many years you've been alive, right? We keep track of our age and years. We, we are, we're keenly aware that we only have so many years to live, particularly as we get older. When we're young, we want time to, to speed up, right? 
But when we're older, we want time to slow down. Time is, is an interesting thing. And it's primarily relevant to us because of death. If you think in terms of, of a reality where there is no death, time doesn't have the same kind of relevance, does it? If you and I lived in a world where nobody died, where we lived forever, and death wasn't an end, what would time do, or what would time be, and how would time matter? It would certainly not be the same as it is for us now. But because we all die, we realize that our lives are finite. We know that there is an end point of our life, and every moment, every minute, every second, indeed every year that passes, takes us one notch closer to that moment. And I think the older we get, the more we feel that passing in our bodies, right? We just feel the deterioration that's happening. And we know that death is getting closer. But if you read God's word, you understand that God's original intent in his original creation was not for man to die. Man was created to to enjoy unending perfect fellowship with him. Man was created to experience unending joy and unending pleasure in his creation. But the Bible tells us that death came to mankind. And death entered our experience because of the entrance of sin. Sin entered the human experience. If you were to flip back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2 and you were to read the creation story again of Adam and Eve and and all that took place in the Garden of Eden, you would find in chapter 2 verse 17 these words, God speaking to Adam and Eve after creation, saying to them, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely, what? You're going to die. I've created you to enjoy unending fellowship with me. I've created you to enjoy unending pleasure and joy in the creation that I've given you. But if you disobey me, death will come. Death will come. And it will change everything about your experience of life. Page or so over in your Bible in Genesis 3 verse 19, after after disobedience and sin has entered experience of humanity, we find these words. God speaking to Adam, words of judgment. He says, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you, what? You return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for your dust. And to dust you'll return. Adam, just like I told you, death has come. And it will be your experience. And in verse 21, we're told, the Lord God made for Adam and his, for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Immediately at the beginning, when death comes, we see another example of death. God slaughters an animal to make skins for Adam and Eve, symbolically showing us all that there's a wage for our sin. That because of sin, there's death. That sin of Adam and Eve, it set, set sort of the, the trajectory for all men who would come after Adam and Eve. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, a good summary of this experience when he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. From the time you and I are born, to the time we die. We all live under the shadow of death. It's the great enemy of mankind. We know it will come for us. We just don't know when it will come for us. As I read one time, someone said, our birth certificates don't have an expiration date. We don't know. We know when we're born, but we don't know when we'll die. We do know it'll happen. And until that time comes, mankind lives sort of under the fear of death. In fact, there's really nothing that finite men fear more than death. It marks literally the end of our lives. And what what, what lies beyond for most people is, is a great mystery. And mankind wrestles with the questions of what does my life mean and what happens when I die? Is there anything beyond? course as Christians it's not a mystery to us right because we have God's word 
It tells us where we came from. It tells us that we were created by a personal and loving God. It tells us that there's a life beyond this one, that we all live forever in a place, either heaven or hell. It tells us that there's a a way to die and still live. That's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who, who died on a Roman cross and took our sin upon himself and paid the full price and the full penalty for what we owed who dealt with death once and for all, breaking its power over us on the cross. Because of those things that we know to be true from God's word, we don't have to live in a constant fear of death. Yet the reality is, the experience of many believers today is that they continue to live lives bondage to the fear of death scared to death to die and when the specter of of death starts to loom on the horizon many Christians respond exactly like the lost world around us to that possibility John Ortberg pastor and writer said this fear has created more practicing heretics than bad theology ever has For it makes us live as though we serve a limited, finite, partially present, semi-competent God. Unfortunately, nothing in the last couple of years has exposed this reality better than the COVID-19 pandemic. I think you've seen that and I've seen that. As politicians and media personalities and pop culture has, has continuously inundated us, with messages of fear and tried to stoke us day in and day out to be in abject fear of death from a disease, often from their, you know, doing so for their own gain, often doing so in order to manipulate people to do what they want in order to accomplish their own political ambitions. But in the face of that, many Christians, many Christians have responded exactly like the lost world around us to the fear of death from COVID-19. Many Christians have responded exactly like the world with fear and hand-wringing, hiding out in our homes, isolating ourselves from anyone else, shutting down the worshiping body of Christ for extended periods of time, demonizing other people who don't go along with the public narrative that's being taught to us sitting back silently as people's livelihoods are taken away, their ability to feed their family taken away simply because they don't want to take an experimental vaccine. Throughout all of this, the American church has had a tremendous opportunity to display for a watching world the difference that Jesus Christ makes in the face of the fear of death. We have had a tremendous opportunity to show a fearful and anxious world what courage looks like, the courage that comes through faith. And yet on many levels and at many times, we've failed pretty remarkably. And I think our text this morning is a challenge to that. I want to teach you and present to you one simple thought that I hope will sort of shape the way you go into the new year. I want you to get this thought. It's very simple. Because Jesus Christ has the power over death, Christians should be the most secure, courageous people in their culture. Because Jesus Christ holds the power over death, Christians should be the most secure and courageous people in their culture we should respond in a radically different way than the lost world around us to the fear of death. And our courage in the face of the fear of death should be a testimony that draws the world around us to faith in Christ. And our text reminds us this morning of that, the power of Christ over death. And I pray through this this brief encounter that we have with this narrative this morning that the result in your life and the result in mine would be a reminder that Jesus Christ and Jesus alone holds the power 
over death. And secondarily, that it would be for us a very serious challenge in this new year to live lives of courage and faith that display the difference that faith in Christ means. So let's look this morning at the story as Luke gives it to us, beginning in verse 11. He tells us first about the power and the destruction of death. In very simple language, he just says, soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain. His disciples and a great crowd went with him. So soon afterward, well, soon after what? Immediately preceding this, Jesus had told us, or Luke had told us about Jesus healing a centurion's servant. And so sometime in close proximity to when he healed the centurion's servant, Jesus makes a move from Capernaum where he was toward a place called Nain. Now I suspect you've never heard of Nain because it is a tiny village that is just about 20 miles southwest of Capernaum. It's a little nowhere place in the middle of nowhere. 20 miles southwest of Capernaum, 20, excuse me, six miles southeast of Nazareth. So not far from Jesus' hometown and uh, somewhat of a, of a walk from Capernaum where Jesus was when he healed the, the centurion's servant. And I, I, I can imagine as Jesus set out on, on this course toward Nain from Capernaum, we're told that his disciples are with him and we're told that there's a great crowd also that went with him. At this point, because of what he's done, because of what he's taught, because of the miracles he's displayed, he's drawn a crowd of people to himself who are now just following him wherever he goes. Most of whom are, we'll, we'll discover as we work through Luke's gospel, are just looking to see what he's gonna do next. They're, they're sort of just interested people who know that there's something different about him and they wanna see what's he gonna do next. So as he turns and heads toward this little town and an out-of-the-way village, I'm sure the disciples and I'm sure the crowd were, were wondering, where is he going? Surely he's not going to Nain. There's a little nowhere place. What in the world could possibly waiting, be waiting for him to do there? Well, Luke tells us there was something waiting for him to do there. He had an appointment to keep. And so on the way, as he and his disciples and the crowd are traveling toward Nain, at some point on the journey, they meet another great crowd that's coming out of Nain. It's not just any crowd, it's a funeral procession. And again, it has a considerable crowd. So we have these two crowds sort of coming toward one another, and they converge somewhere in proximity to Nain. This crowd that's coming out, Luke tells us, is, is led by a mother who's grieving her son, son who's died we're not told how he died we're just told that he died and so what we have is a first century funeral procession it's a little different than the way that we go about burying the dead in our culture and these days the burial would take place pretty quickly after death uh, a family would, would gather and they would uh, wrap up the body of the deceased in, in, li in linen strips, really from head to toe. Added to the linen strips would be up to 75 pounds of spices and resin and they would completely cover the body. You can imagine why they would do that because the dead stinketh, right? So you cover them with stuff and spices. Once wrapped on the day of burial, they would place the dead wrapped body on a thing called, uh, and Luke refers to it as a beer, a B-I-E-R, not a B-E-E-R, in case you didn't read it, you just misunderstood me, which is just an ancient word for a stretcher. So just think in terms of stretcher when you see that word. Friends would carry the, the dead corpse that is now wrapped on the stretcher, and they would lead a procession out of town to wherever the burial place is for that particular family. So you would have the mother in the front, usually by herself. You would have the, the friends carrying the dead body on the stretcher, and then the great crowd of those who, who are mourning the death following along out to the place of burial which was usually in some sort of a cave that was hewn out of the rock. Body would be placed on a shelf that was sort of dug out inside the cave and it would be covered by a stone, a large stone. And so that's the process that's taking place here as Jesus encounters this crowd. A funeral procession is taking place and it's not hard for you or for me I think to imagine that scene. We've all been to funerals before, right? 
We know what it is to experience death in proximity to us. We know what it's like to, to see somebody that we love and care about die. We understand the grief and we understand the pain. And we know what it's like to go to a funeral and to shed tears and to have to say goodbye for now. That's what's happening in this scene. And I'm not sure that there's any more acute kind of grief and pain than the grief and pain that comes from a parent who has to bury their child. I don't know that there's anything quite like that, at least by my observation and experience. We have in our own church family those who've had that experience. And it's literally gut-wrenching. It's absolutely devastating. And so that's what we have. We have this dear woman who is heading out with a group of mourners, her dead son, on a stretcher being buried. It is a heartbreaking scene. It's a heartbreaking scene. Because in this case, the devastation isn't just that, that this young man is dead, that it's her son, but we're told that this is her only son. She has no other sons to love on. She has no other sons to watch grow up. She has no other sons to give her grandchildren in her old age. This was her only son. More importantly, she has no other son to take care of her in her old age because this is her only son. Beyond that, we're told, grief upon grief, that she's a widow. This isn't her first time burying somebody she loves. Her husband has died previously, and she's buried him. At least then she had her son to help her, to protect her, to provide for her. But now she is truly, totally alone. No husband, no son. A woman in this condition, in that culture, would not have been expected to live very long. Her condition and her situation was desperate, and it was absolutely hopeless. With nobody to provide for them, with nobody to protect them, women in this condition often died from hunger, died from exposure, died from assault. It was just the way the world operated. So this dear woman who's coming out in this, in this procession is not just someone who's grieving over the loss of a, of a dead relative, not just someone who's having to bury her own son, but she's someone who knows that her own life, in every real sense, is pretty much over. And her days are going to be short. And before long, she's likely going to join her son in the family too. And as we imagine this scene in our sort of sanctified imagination, we see all over it the reality that death is a great destroyer. It destroys the life that it takes. It destroys the joy and the happiness of friends and family that are affected. It alters the, the whole course of life for everybody affected. It ends all opportunity for repentance and faith. And we see a glimpse of that destruction in this very simple scene. But as we see, death is not all-powerful. It does not get the final word. Jesus gets the final word. Because verse 13 tells us that when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. Fascinating that as these two crowds began to, to come together and pass by on the road to Nain, we're told that Jesus saw this woman. He saw this woman. I don't know what he was going about doing. I don't know if he came specifically to meet her, but surely the Son of God had a lot of plans for his short life. But he wasn't too busy to see a grieving widow. He didn't have more important things to do on this day than to stop and to, to help. He saw her. He took notice of her. He is the Son of God. She's a nobody widow in a nobody town. And yet somehow her grief and her pain captivated his attention. And he simply could not pass by and do nothing. 
in case you're wondering about this, Jesus cares about people that the world often overlooks. People who feel left out. People who feel alone. People who feel unimportant. People who feel small. I don't know that there's a better example in all of Scripture than this. Than Jesus stopping to love and care for this woman. He cares about human suffering. He cares about you when you suffer. He cares about me when I suffer. Luke tells us he had compassion on her. It's the same word we've seen before. It's a word that refers to the inner parts of the body. It doesn't just mean he had pity for her. It means that he literally felt, he felt the sting of her grief in the pit of his stomach. He was moved with compassion on the inside when he sees what's going on. You know, I run into people all the time who have this foolish impression that God is somehow always angry. That he's always angry and waiting to zap somebody with some sort of punishment. Truly, God is angry at times. It is anger, righteous anger, certainly is a part of his character that he displays at times, but it's not all of his character. Just as anger is righteous anger is a part of his character, so is mercy, and so is compassion, and so is love. And so is graciousness. And we see a little glimpse of the compassion of Christ when he stops to talk to this dear lady. God is merciful and he's gracious. In your own time, on your own Bible study, do a, 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 just do a little research on that description of God, gracious and merciful or merciful and gracious. And see how many times that's the description of God in the Old Testament. It's quite frequent. Out of sheer compassion, out of sheer mercy, Jesus stops and he says to this woman, do not weep. Do not weep. What a thing to say to a woman who's going to bury her child. Imagine it from her perspective. A guy that you never met stops you and tells you not to cry. You're on the way to bury your son. I can't imagine the reaction on her face. I can't imagine the reaction of the crowds who heard this. It must have seemed cold and somewhat heartless and out of touch with the moment, if you will. But Jesus knew something that nobody else knew. He had the power to end her weeping. his compassion was driving him to intervene and that's precisely what he was going to do he's going to intervene he's going to reverse the the natural course of events and he's going to restore her joy and he's going to restore her future and because he's about to do that she really doesn't need to weep but in that moment she doesn't know that but in short order she does because the bible tells us that he came up and he touched the beer and the bearers stood still And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Now again, if you're just in the crowd following the funeral procession, or if you're just in the crowd following Jesus out of the city, this must have been absolutely astounding to see Jesus stop, walk up to a funeral procession, to literally touch the stretcher, and have the whole procession stop in its tracks. First of all, no Jew in their right mind would ever touch a burial stretcher with a dead body on it. To do so would make you immediately, ceremonially unclean. But Jesus did. And it's fascinating. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. We just saw with the centurion's servant, how did he heal that that man? From a distance. He wasn't even in close proximity to him. And he heals him. He can heal however he wants to. But just like we saw earlier in Luke's gospel when he heals a leper, Jesus touched that leper. Not because he had to, because he wanted to identify with the suffering. And I think here we have something quite similar where he touches this this, this burial stretcher and he literally stops this death procession in its tracks. And he commands the dead man to get up. Again, in those couple of seconds that probably it took, I don't know how long it took, people must have been hanging on the edge of their seat, right? Even if they were standing up, 
who tells a dead man to get up? I mean, this is go time here. Either you're going to be a fool real quick or something pretty amazing is about to happen. I must have thought he was a madman. If any other person who said something like that to a dead body would be a madman. But Jesus isn't like any other person. The Bible declares to us front to back that he is literally God in human flesh. He is not like any other man. He is God, and as God, he holds the power over life and death. In John chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, John writes this. He says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. Everything was made through him. He gives life to everything that has life. And in Hebrews chapter 1, we're told in verse 3, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus isn't like any other man. He has power over life and power over death. And the one who created all life, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, can most certainly speak to a dead man and tell him to get up. And that's exactly what he does. And like all the rest of creation, when Jesus commands, it comes to pass. The dead man sat up and he began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. I mean, can you imagine dead man, funeral procession, sits straight up, wrapped up like a mummy, and he starts talking. Had to be dramatic dead man now alive and not just alive but talking why oh why does Luke not tell us what he said inquiring minds want to know right what did this guy say when he woke up I mean I don't know did he say wake up and just you know kind of rub his eyes and say man I had the strangest dream Or maybe he just got up and looked around and said, who died? I don't know. Maybe he said, man, I, I was dead, but now I'm feeling much better. I don't know what this guy said. But I want to know what he said, and I'm going to ask one day. But I can tell you this, nothing like this had ever happened in Nain. <laughs> and nothing like this had ever happened anywhere else, for that matter. This was a resurrection of a dead man, and it was a healing that was instant. Whatever killed him in a moment was reversed. He's now alive, and he's now well. And Jesus puts on display for all of those people in both of those crowds and for this poor grieving widow his absolute and complete power over death. He speaks and death is reversed and life is restored. It did not drain his energy one bit. He didn't need a spell. He didn't need a potion. He didn't need some sort of medication or a treatment or a therapy. He didn't even need time to recover. All he needed was to speak in death. Death is reversed. Just as easily as he can say to a paralytic, get up and take up your mat and walk, he can say to a dead man, get up and get back to life. People read this stuff in the Bible and they say, oh man, this is just fairy tales. Dead people don't wake up from the dead. Or they say the gospel writers just sort of embellish these kind of events in, their, in the life of Jesus. They, 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 he was really important to them and so they, when they wrote about him, they, they made him more spectacular than he really was. Like, like the fishing story about the fish you caught that nobody saw, right? That was really this big, but when you tell the story, the fish was a whale. That's what the gospel writers did with Jesus. And so they told stories about dead people that came to life when he spoke. The only problem with that is Luke was written and circulated sometime around A.D. 64. In case you're counting, that's within one generation of the events that took place on this particular day near Nain. And he makes very clear to us that not just one, but two great crowds of people witness this event many of them would still have been alive. Maybe even most of them would have still been alive at the writing and the circulation of Luke's gospel. 
if it didn't happen the way that Luke recorded it, they would have been easily able to debunk the whole story and Luke's whole gospel. Don't you know that Jesus made enemies along the way in his life? The Jewish religious leaders of all people were looking for anything that they could find to damage his reputation. The church had enough enemies in the early days. You know if they could have found a way to discredit Jesus, they would have. And you can bet they verified this event. But the reality of the matter was it wasn't just the witnesses that saw it who were still alive. It's quite possible that the man who was dead was still alive. I mean, if you want to know if a dead man came back to life because Jesus told him, there's an easy way to find that out. Go to Nain and look him up and see if he's dead or alive. The truth is it happened exactly the way Luke recorded it. It was witnessed by many people, all of whom could corroborate the facts. And we're told here at the end of Luke's account that they were seized by fear and that they glorified God, saying, a great prophet's arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report, we're told, about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. The people who saw it spread the word. They told everybody they could find what they saw. They saw Jesus say to a dead man, get up. And the man got up and he spoke and he went back to life with his mother. They saw a grieving, hopeless widow who's lost everything, whose life has effectually come to an end. Get her life back when her son is restored. They saw a vivid display that death is not ultimate, but Jesus is. That there is no power that death holds over us that Jesus isn't superior to. Jesus speaks a word and death is reversed. So I bring you back to the point I was trying to make. Because Jesus has power over death, Christians, who by definition are people who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, should be the most secure and courageous people in their culture. There is no excuse for cowardice among Christians. There is no excuse for buckling under the fear of death for Christians. Because here are the facts, and let me just sort of show them to you as a way of wrapping this up this morning. Here are the facts. Jesus made us. We know that. We read it. He's numbered our days. The Bible says in the book of Psalms that all of our days are numbered. They've been written in his book before any one of those days has ever even lived. He's numbered our days. None of us will die a day early, and none of us will die a day late. We'll die precisely on time. He has full and complete authority and power over death. He creates us, he gives us life, and he is the one who has full and complete power and authority over our lives and over our death. The one who raised this dead man will certainly raise you and me when our life comes to an end here. He'll raise us to eternal life. Death poses absolutely no obstacle to him whatsoever. He's once and for all dealt with our sin on the cross. And because because of that, the power of death, the power of the fear of death has been broken. We do not have to be ruled by it any longer. He told his disciples, and you and me by way of them, when he was leaving, that he's gone to prepare a place for us so that when we die, we'll go to be where he is. To be absent from the body, Paul says, is to be present where? With the Lord. And the Bible makes very clear that life in heaven is infinitely better, infinitely better than life on this earth. There's no sin, there's no sadness, 
There's no grieving, there's no pain, there's no conflict, there's no war, there's no sickness, there's no death. There's nothing but pure joy and gladness in his presence. Again, we don't have time this morning, but you should read some this year about heaven in case you're under the, the foolish delusion that heaven is like some long, unending church service where the sermon never ends and you never actually make it to lunch. That is not what heaven is like. Whatever pleasures this world offers pale in comparison to what heaven holds for those who know Christ. For us to live as Christ and to die is a gain. Now I submit to you this morning, if those things that you see on the screen are true, if those things are true, how can you and I live lives riddled with fear? What do we have to be afraid of? Those truths, when we believe them and we embrace them as reality and as facts that are biblical, should fill us with courage. They should make us absolutely fearless, particularly in regard to death. They should build within us the courage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right, who stood on the brink of a fiery furnace with the threat of death looming large over their lives instead of being riddled with the fear of death they stood and they said to the king O King Nebuchadnezzar we have no need to answer you about this if this is our case our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand O king but if he doesn't be it known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship your golden image that you've set up. That's the kind of courage that comes from people who believe things like that. They can say to a king, king, you don't hold the power of death over my life. God alone holds that. And the God that I serve can deliver me or he can choose not to. And if he chooses that this is the way that I'm going to depart this earth and enter into his presence, then that's okay too. Because it's better there than it is here it should give us the kind of confidence and secure obedience of a, of a Daniel in the Old Testament for whom the civil government the king Darius at the time issued a law outlawing prayer the penalty for praying to anyone other than the king death via hungry lions and we're told in Daniel 6 that when Daniel knew the law had been signed, what does he do? Does he go home into hiding? Does he take his prayer into a secret place? Does he rally a protest against the king? Does he just stop praying until the king changes his mind because that's the new law? Nope. He went to his house where he had his windows and his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God just as he had done previously. Even with death looming, he understood God is sovereign over death, not the king. And so he did what he did every day. He prayed and he left his windows open so anybody who wanted to could see. He was not ashamed and he was not afraid and God delivered him. I don't know about you going into this new year, but these are the words that are on my mind and on my heart. Over 186 times in the Bible, God tells his people, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Paul asked, if God is for us, who can be against us? I know life in this world gives us an awful lot of good and reasonable reasons to be afraid, but I want to submit to you this morning that God gives us better reasons to not live in fear because Jesus holds the power over death. We must be courageous and secure, and we must live that this year. I'm praying that for you. I'm praying for courage. 
We live in a culture that is more and more growing hostile to our faith. We live in a world that is growing more and more hostile to our faith. If you think the fear of death is going to go away, you're fooling yourself. More will come this year. More opportunities to live in fear. May God help us to be a testimony to our culture and to those in our circles of the courage that comes from faith in the one who holds the power over death. Let's pray for that this morning. Lord, we're, we're in a new year. We have a new opportunity in front of us. Whatever successes or failures we had last year are gone and they're behind us and they're really in most ways irrelevant now. But you've given us life. Unlike that list of people that we mentioned at the very beginning of this message, we didn't die in 21. You continue to give us life and breath in 2022. We live at your leisure. And we should live for your glory. And yet, Lord, we look at our own selves and our own hearts and we know the power that the fear of death holds over us. And if we're truly honest, we know how it's affected us in these recent years and days. And Lord, we confess where it's appropriate, Lord, that we've allowed fear to captivate our hearts in such a way that we've lived and acted just like the lost world around us. But like Ortberg said, we've become practicing heretics, really. Saying we believe one thing, but practicing something altogether different. Lord, we confess that sin to you this morning. Like the rest of our, the ways that we fall short of your glory, it diminishes your glory. It smears your character in the world. And for that, we're grieved and we're sorry. We pray for your forgiveness this morning. And more than that even, Lord, we pray that as we launch into this new year, not knowing what's going to come, not knowing what challenges or opportunities, what griefs or what pains, what joys or what celebrations lie ahead, we know this, there will be opportunities to live in fear. And we pray this year, Lord, that you would give us strength, that you would give us security, that you would give us courage. That whatever comes our way, we would refuse to live, live in fear. That we would live like Daniel. That we would live like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because we know, Lord Jesus, that you alone hold the power over death. You alone have given us life. And you alone have numbered our days. Let us not be fools. But let us be secure. And let us show the world around us the real courage looks like that comes from faith in you. Only by the power of your spirit within us can we do this, Lord, and we pray for it for your sake and your glory alone. Amen.